Hey everybody, welcome on in to a special trade deadline edition of a Brothers Clayton podcast for Salt City Hoops. I'm Dan Clayton sitting over here in Brooklyn, New York. Clear across the country from me is Ken Clayton. Uh, we are indeed brothers. We are indeed the Brothers Clayton and this is indeed the Brothers Clayton podcast which is backed by, I guess, popular demand. Ken, did we decide what uh, what what amount of requests we need to be able to call it popular demand? Well, I'm not sure what amount we should need to call it popular demand, but I think we had two or three requests, so I guess that was enough for us. Okay, we'll take it. We'll take it. We're here, and we're here largely because there was some Jazz news to break down um, relative to today's trade deadline. The Jazz made a move um, dealing Ennis Cantor and Steve Novak for some uh, some salary cap relief, some picks, a, a player that likely won't hang around very long, and uh, some salary cap flexibility. So we'll take a look at that um, as we go. But first, you know, Ken, I, I think the reactions are plentiful. And, and one of the questions that's most interesting to me is this question about what just happened to the core. Um, did the Jazz dismantle their core? Did the Jazz shrink their core? Are they giving up on their core? Um, and, and obviously, Ennis Cantor was an interesting part of what the Jazz started to put together uh, back in 2010, with with Gordon and Derek, and then later adding Ennis and Burks. What are your What was your first reaction to the trade, and and how do you think it impacts what we should be uh, viewing as the core of the future contending Jazz? Well, probably like a lot of people, um, my first reaction. I think when I look at the trade deadline, I'm looking for excitement and sexy and something that can improve the team on the court, even though that's not really the Jazz' primary purpose in a season like this, 29 games left, and you can improve the, the team on the court, and that's not going to help much. So my first reaction is, now say what? You know, uh, <laughs> not, nothing in the trade on the other side of the trade really looks all that exciting. Um, so that was my first reaction as I was, as you know, driving around town, not really able to focus my uh, entire attention to the trade deadline like I normally do. Yeah, well, don't tell my employer this, but thank goodness for conference calls because I was watching closely. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's not like anyone ever goes, woohoo, you know, Grant Jarrett and Tibor Pleiss. Um, but, you know, I, I still think that, that perhaps this tells us that the Jazz are answering questions about who's a part of the of the future plans and not sort of going back to square one on those questions but actually figuring some things out relative to you know what's going to happen if the Jazz are actually to contend for you know playoff spots and and more in the next five years or so. Yeah well you and I, you and I have talked about this before and if you go back to 2010 and you get the two players uh, Hayward's drafted and and uh, Favors picked up in the trade, and then in 11, they draft both Cantor and Burks, and immediately everybody starts shouting, core four. And then they skipped a year in the draft, and then they added uh, Burks in 13, and then and then we won't even, for the moment, I'm not even counting uh, Exum and, and Gobert in there. But So you got the, the, the core four, core five, fab five, whatever you want to call them. We were probably a little bit premature on that, because, uh, again, as you know, I've been working or not working on this book project of mine and as I really took a took a you know 30,000 foot view of the jazz history in the 80s the thing you really notice is there was this one year period of time where it was the most important year in the history of the jazz at least to date because in that one year they added Stockton they added Sloan 
they added Malone, and uh, Larry Miller bought half the team and then later bought the rest of the team. And those four guys were the cornerstones of the team for 20-plus years. Um, now, but at the time, nobody was shouting, it's the core, these are the core. <laughs> we didn't know that yet. And so I think the process that you get with this core is we thought we knew the core because we got two top 10 draft picks and two top, uh, not top 10 because Burks was uh, 12 or 13. So two, 12, yeah. Four, yeah, four lottery picks in a two-year period. And you think, oh, we're set. We're the, we, we've got a, but just like any other player, if you look back at when uh, Stockton and Malone were drafted, well, that same season in uh, 84, the Jazz also picked up uh, Billy Pulse and Steve Hayes, and nobody was shouting that they were the core. You're always bringing in players, and you're always sending out players to, to some extent or another. Um, you're always looking to better the team. And uh, now, while I'm not making an argument that the Jazz bettered the team today, like is the team better today, tomorrow than today? No, of course not. But you're always players are always in and out, and so we probably prematurely anointed what we should have said is the potential core four. And now the Jazz can spend two or three or however many seasons figuring out which ones are really part of the core and which ones need to be replaced. Yeah, I, although I think, for, you know, from where I sit, I think that's maybe part of what, they're, what they've started to answer. And by the way, Jazz fans, you should pester Ken about, about this book and, uh, and kick-starting because I think it's going to be, um, you know, a fun read for people who are close to the Utah Jazz. Um, but... But definitely, you know, they have Favors and Hayward that are starting to play like near all-star players. In fact, I think Hayward probably had an all-star case if the Jazz's record was better. Um, and then and then you sort of have this hope, you know, for Dante Exum that maybe he's a star in waiting or a, or a core piece in waiting. And then you have Rudy Gobert that sort of crashed onto the scene. And, and Dennis Lindsay even admitted today in uh, in some of the post-deadline interviews that even he didn't expect to see the leap that Rudy Gobert made. So I think you are starting to see a sense of um, maybe not, hey, these are the core guys and these are the guys that are going to hoist the trophy and uh, and lead the parade route, but at least a sense of, you know, okay, here's the here's the next iteration of of who, you know, of who we're really going to be culling that group from. Because you're right, it's not just that we didn't know in 1985 that Stockton was a cornerstone piece and that Malone was a cornerstone piece and that Jerry Sloan was going to wind up being that important to the franchise. We also didn't know in 1985 that Billy Paltz wasn't, right? I, I, and No, we, we actually did. Okay. <laughs> he was at the tail end of like a 16-year career. And <laughs> well, but, you know what nobody I mean. was thinking, ooh, the Whopper's going to put us over the top. But he did take a good punch from Akeem Olajuwon. So. But you know what I mean. I mean they, yeah. they brought together a bunch of pieces. They, um, they let it run its course. They did their evaluation. Um, and, and what that yielded is a couple of Hall of Famers, a Hall of Fame coach, and an owner that would be really important to establishing the franchise in you know in Utah and within the relevance of the NBA world, um, but it's not like they batted a thousand in that no. process. There were some guys they got that ultimately didn't pan out that they eventually decided to cut bait on. Yeah. So that's actually a really good metaphor, I think, um, and obviously might allay some of the. <laughs> some of the anxiety about this trade because I'm with you and, and as we move on to the next topic, which is did the Jazz get a good return for Cantor, 
I sort of felt the same way. You know, most of the trade packages that that people imagined leading up to, or at least the Jazz fans were imagining leading up to the draft, probably came with players at the center, and then you know you you fill in around the edges with picks to even out value. And instead, what the Jazz got was something that centered around picks and assets with some pretty minor players filling around the edges. Um, pretty minor? That's a, that may be an understatement. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see what the German legend Tibor Pleiss can do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the trade today was, was more... It, it was less about, like, let's go out and get a Chris Middleton or let's go out and get... Uh, an Isaiah Thomas or a Reggie Jackson, although I'm personally not a fan of those last two um, in terms of their fit for the Jazz. But but I mean that's the that's the kind of trade that a lot of fans were expecting. And so when you when you see the Lodge bomb or the Stein bomb or whoever initially broke the news, and you say, oh, you know Kendrick Perkins, who's going to be bought out, and then you wait for the other shoe to drop, and you find out that the other shoe is you know. So let's recap real quick what the Jazz got. Um, Kendrick Perkins, who is likely to be bought out, who is expected to be bought out, I should say. Um, they picked up a first-round pick from OKC in 2017-2018. Certainly won't be a lottery pick because of the protections and is likely to be, you know, let's just call it a mid-to-late first-round pick because we don't know what Oklahoma City's roster will look like in 17 and 18. A second-round pick from Detroit. Um, Two two players, two the rights to two players who, um, you know, Grant Jarrett will come immediately. He's a stretch four and has a really nice stroke, but has had only 25 total minutes of NBA play. Um, and the draft rights to Tibor Pleiss, um, who as a 25-year-old who's coming off the bench for an ACB team, you probably don't look at that as a real promising future. Um, and then obviously they were also able to to get rid of Steve Novak's salary for next season, which actually opens up for the Jazz a, a near max slot. So I mean, is that is that a is that a good trade package? Could the Jazz have done better? Should the Jazz have done better? Well, my first thought was, would they have done better, assuming they were looking to deal Cantor if he hadn't opened his mouth last week and if his agent hadn't taken the open mouth and stuck a few feet in it. Um, I think they did nothing to help his value. Um, that said, I don't know that the take would have been that much better. Uh, they got, I guess, barring getting a real difference maker, they got what I guess they were looking for, which was some cap relief and some uh, and some assets. I mean, when I say assets, I'm really talking about that first, and it's not a huge value first. But uh, I'm not. I'm not thinking Jared or or the German stiff are necessarily a big asset at all. But you know, we'll see what they what they bring when they get here, if they get here. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you never want to rule anything out. Um, there are certainly, um, you know, players who have come with a similar profile, lesser-known prospects, second-round picks, undrafted guys who have turned into nice NBA players. Yeah. Um, and the Jazz scouting department certainly does their work. Um, but I, I think, you know, when you, when you talk about the trade package, one guy's analysis who I've really enjoyed reading this evening is my Twitter buddy, Milo, um, at my underscore low, L-O, who um, 
who the way he basically put it is that you know Cantor's a restricted free agency wasn't going to be currency for the Jazz come draft time or free agency. I mean, he he wasn't going to be a chip that they could use to get what they wanted on the draft uh, at draft. And the Jazz wanted to convert that into draft currency. And I think that there could potentially be some truth to that. Um, and and I, I don't know how much value that OKC pick is going to have. I don't know how much value. Um, I certainly don't think Tibor Pleiss and Grant Jarrett had a huge amount of market value. But I think to really understand what the Jazz got for this trade, we'll have to see what they do with that, to steal a term from, from Milo, with that draft currency or, or that, uh, I guess, player acquisition currency to think about it more broadly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And it's, you know, maybe that maybe that additional first is going to give them a, a, you know, a piece. They've been doing this for the last several years. They moved up to get Darren Williams. They moved up to get Trey Burke. Um, they do that with additional picks in in that same draft or in future drafts. And so maybe that's something they'll have the opportunity because right now they're not looking like they're going to be, um, unless they get lucky in the lottery, they're not going to be a top five. They're going to be in the five to ten or even slipping into the 11-12 range depending on how they finish the season. Well, let's talk about that for a sec. because So Hollinger's playoff odds have the Jazz finishing with 34 wins, which would be like 11th or 12th worst heading into the lottery day. I think that this trade... Certainly, in the short term, uh, probably lowers that projection. So, I mean, obviously, Cantor had some flaws, but he's an NBA level guy. He's a rotation quality guy, and now you're taking a lot of his minutes and giving them to Rudy, which is probably good news because Rudy has such an impressive real plus minus and some impressive tools. But you're giving some of those minutes to other people who may or may not be rotation ready or may not be as established NBA players, um, you know, Quinn Snyder was talking this evening about how this creates an opportunity for Jeremy. Um, obviously, Grant Jarrett might get some minutes. Um, but as we think about what the rotation looks like from here and how that impacts what the Jazz might do with, did you say it's 29 more games to go, right? Yeah, I believe so. So if yes. you look at what they might be able to do in the last 29 games, I'm not sure I picture them finishing the season at the 500 pace, the 500-ish pace that they've been on since mid-December. Yeah, I would agree. I think when you look at the the team now, now I don't for a minute think that um, the, the, it's going to work out this way from a minute standpoint, but you just took the 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 roster spot, Ennis Cantor's roster spot, and for this season, this trade boils down to Ennis Cantor for Jarrett. Now, Jarrett's not going to get all Cantor's minutes, but that's what you did. So you really thinned your bench. You you took a guy who had been producing in the NBA, not on, you know, an all-star level, not, you know, but, and now you, you've given him to a guy who's played 26 minutes, ever. So you've, you've definitely thinned your bench. Now, on a good night, uh, Gobert and Favors are going to be able to hold down the, the front court, and they get a little support from uh, Evans, Booker, um, and whoever else the Jazz might bring in, because they might need to bring in another big at this point. Um, mm. They're going to get some support there. But on a good night, that's going to be sufficient. But what about on the night where uh, Favors and uh, and Rudy get a few fouls, as they sometimes do? They're still young, developing players. They're not. Uh, they're they're still prone to that a bit on those nights, or the nights when one of them misses a game. Can you even imagine the nights when a night when Favors has to sit now? Um, now you're. Uh, you're really thin because now 
uh, all these guys, Jarrett Evans, you're really relying on them for probably major minutes on a on a that on that night basis. You're right, because because on nights when everything is going right, you can you can maybe stagger those two a little bit, and you can you can use a couple guys off the bench to make sure that that Rudy and and Favors, you know, that one of them is at the five usually. Um, but on on nights when you don't have that luxury, on nights when someone does miss a game or gets into foul trouble, you're you're talking about your backup center and your defensive anchor being, you know, six eight Booker or six nine um, and rail thin Jeremy Evans, or six nine and really more of an outside player Grant Jarrett. So I I agree. It'll be interesting to see what they do. There's some talk that maybe. Um, Jack Cooley will will come back down from Boise, so obviously, um, you know the the depth up front is going to be going to be an issue. But you had some thoughts today as we were talking about just rotations in general that I thought we should cover. Yeah, I was actually just going to bring that up because when you mentioned that uh, that maybe uh, Rudy and Derek have to stagger a little bit, I would welcome that just because um, you know years ago back when the in the early to mid stages of Stockton and Malone's career, there was never a time where those two were off the court at the same time. Stockton went out at the six-minute mark, like he did really till the last day he played, mm-hmm. um, and then but then um, he would come back in at the quarter break, and that's when Malone would sit. And basically, what you got out of that was they'd each take a six-minute break and they'd each play 36 minutes, maybe a little shorter break because then they, and they'd go up to 40 minutes at a certain stage in their career. Later on, as they aged and there was a, they felt like there was a need to give them more rest, wisely, I'm sure, um, they would, they then you would get into more of a, you had a full complement of, of five backups on the court at a given time. You never had that before because you always had the starters minus Stockton and then you had Stockton plus plus two to four bench guys in the in the second and fourth quarters and you and I, and I what I've seen later on even farther down the road in in uh, at the end of Sloan's career is you just got a full-on we have two small forwards two shooting guards two point guards and it's almost like two separate teams and they they play together a little bit as they get put in and taken out of the game but really you have a first unit and a second unit that are almost independent of each other. And I just think uh, with a roster like the Jazz have now, they don't need to do that. They're going to, A, they're going to need to keep either Derek or Rudy on the court pretty much all the time because I just can't imagine, you know, throwing Booker and Jeremy Evans out there and those are your bigs. Yeah. Unless the other team is just is also, you know, going small ball. But then on the flip side of that, look at the backcourt. The Jazz don't need to stagger and play too deep at every position with some of the versatility they have where you've got Burke, Exum, Hayward, Ingles. Um, you know, these guys all have a little bit of a handle. They can these guys can all play multiple positions. Burke not so much, but but certainly Exum, Ingles, Hayward um, these guys are going to all play multiple positions, so you don't have to go too deep at every position. You can tighten that rotation a little bit. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think the Jazz have done a little bit of that on the wings just out of necessity um, yeah. in response to the injuries. It's not. It's clearly not the way Quinn um, wants to operate because early on we definitely saw Team A and Team B, and I think that's a little bit of an NBA trend right now for a number of reasons, and one of my theories on it is... Um, is that back in the days when you could stretch Carl and John out and make sure that one of them was always on the court, that was probably in a different time before advanced metrics helped helped us understand the impact of minutes on players' careers. And so back then it was 
really common for stars to be playing 40 plus minutes, to be averaging 40 plus minutes over the course yeah. of the season. Um, you know, these days you don't find that many players. I'd, I'd have to go look, but I, there's probably only a handful of players, literally, who um, who are playing more than 35, 36 minutes for their teams. Um, but having said that, I, I think in principle you're absolutely right, and um, and there's no there's no requirement to be you know really democratic about it. Um, you put your best guys out there and and you make it work. And um, and I think I, I think we'll feel the effects of the Jazz's roster thinning as the as the last 29 games go. Oh, I would imagine so. And as and I'm trying to think as I looked at the next five to ten games, it looks like they have a little tougher stretch coming up here, and they're going to be doing that now without Ennis Cantor. It's hard to think. Uh, Hollander's playoff odds as of right now assume a 15 and 14 finish to the season. Yeah. Uh, it's hard It's hard for me to imagine that, um, certainly now giving up you know, a starter, a rotation player, and what, uh, top three scorer, top probably third Third or fourth, I, I don't have yeah, to say. Yeah, he was the third leading scorer. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, again, that's gone. Grant Jarrett is there in its place. Not for all the minutes, but that's that's the option you have when you do have to use it. it or Jeremy gonna, or, some, yeah, gonna, or Jack yeah. Cooley or something like yeah. that, right. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Um, even if you say, well, Gobert will take all those minutes. Gobert, um, as great as he is on defense, he's not as polished an offensive player as... as um, NS was, and so it's it's going to have an impact on the on if nothing else the scoring end, but it'll have a, a payback on the defensive end most likely. Yeah, no, I agree. So so we definitely in the short term we'll see probably a, a Jazz that is not going to continue at the 500-ish pace they've been at since mid December, um, and yet I still think that there is that there are some signs coming from the front office that that they sort of view themselves as having bottomed out in the rebuild process, or bottomed out is the wrong word, but but that they've hit the nadir, so to speak, and that they're ready to start climbing up the other side of the mountain um, and, and start the ascent back into relevance. So I wanted to, as we talk about what's next and what the Jazz can, can possibly do with some of the assets that today's action um, created, as well as some of the assets that they just are still holding on to, um, is share a couple of uh, Dennis Lindsay quotes from his interview today on 1280, um, and, and I, I thought these were interesting because I, I think it I think it confirms something that we've talked about, which is the fact that that uh, maybe the focus is shifting from asset accumulation to like okay, let's go let's go build our contending team now or our you know ostensibly hopefully contending team. Um, so first, he was talking about the possibility of adding impact players, impact veterans um, at draft time, meaning taking your multiple picks, taking your lottery pick this year, and instead of drafting someone at 7 or 8 or 9 or wherever the Jazz wind up, turning that around and bringing in a... a an impact veteran, and he said, it's a more prevailing thought than we anticipated based on where we thought we would be at this time last year. So that's, that sounds to me like someone who is at least considering accelerating the process now because maybe you didn't expect that Rudy Gobert was going to come along this quickly, and you didn't expect 
that at the end of the 2014-2015 season, you were going to start to have a read on maybe who those cornerstone pieces could be. Yeah, no, I that that's actually an interesting quote. Although I would, the only thing I would argue with Lindsay a little bit there is I would hope you would have anticipated that you would have a read on these guys by now because you're talking end of uh, what fifth season and fourth season for these guys, uh, not Burke and not the younger, not the two rookies, but you know you, they should have been able to have a read. But I think yeah, they I think they did jump ahead, and I think. Gobert's development was probably a big part of that because um, seeing that they were able to make a decision that they might not have been able to do if they were still if if Gobert was still at last season status they might have still said we need to hang on to Cantor because he's more of our future than Gobert is Gobert probably gave him the opportunity to uh, accelerate that decision in his favor. Yeah, go, the the Gobert leap from being someone who was on the fringes of the rotation. Um, and rightfully so, by the way. I mean, we can we can debate. The, people will debate even still that he was picked on and and um, undervalued and underutilized. But the fact is, he really was not this good last year, right? So he went from being a fringe rotation player to being a really positively impactful player, and by some measures, you know, one of the two or three best jazz men currently. To say nothing of you know the trajectory in front of him. But then you also have to talk about, obviously, the, pro- the progression of um, Gordon Hayward and Derek Favors from good to great, or at least you know, good to knocking on the door of being really all-star level players. I think those are the three players who maybe have accelerated the thinking and gotten Dennis Lindsay thinking, hey, maybe we're ready to start adding those pieces and, and to start to go after the prize a little bit. Um, his next quote, he said, we don't want to be in a perpetual rebuild. Um, which I think is important because, again, I, I don't interpret today today's trade as the Jazz giving up on a core or tearing a core apart. I think it's just that natural sifting process that we talked about with the 80s Jazz of figuring out, you know, that, hey, this person this person's skill set isn't as valuable to us as it is to the marketplace, so let's, um, you, you know, let's convert it into assets and and go from there. And then the other quote I found interesting was he said, um, he had this to say about draft time. We'll be even more significant players come draft time. We will be able to take in assets and players that we would like to move forward with our core group. And he also said that there are some free agents in the group that they like. So the Jazz are sitting on because they were able to offload Novak in this deal, um, they're looking at an op- Technically, they could be sitting as much as $19 million under the cap. You, you subtract out some roster holds, and you're really looking at probably somewhere between 15 to $18 million that you could create, 14 to $18 million that you could create, depending on whose rights you want to keep. If you, if you want to waive Trevor Booker with his non-guaranteed, his partially guaranteed second year, um, but I, you know, I think the number the Jazz are using is 18 million that they could get up to or close to, um, and that's a not insignificant amount of money. Whether their plan is to use draft picks to go acquire guys that are under contract, or whether their plan is to go sit down with free agents and talk about all the awesome things Salt Lake City has to offer, um, you know, I think this, I think that they're about to turn the corner and start heading up the hill. Well, that's it. Uh, go ahead. 
Or at least try is what I was going to say. Well, okay. Yeah, well, sure. There's no guarantee. Um, no, I mean, that's music to everybody's ears because while, uh, you know, these last few years are still fun to watch, it's most fun to watch a young team develop and grow together and do whatever. You know, eventually wins are nice and feeling like your team is relevant is nice. And, uh, you know, that's been missing for a little while. So, uh, more power to them if they can make that jump and, and, you know, get people kind of interested again. It's just obviously from, from yesterday to tomorrow that, that didn't happen with this trade, but it sets them up to be able to do that this summer. Good luck. Let's hope they can get some free agents or make the trades in, in lieu of free agents. Cause we know how free agency sometimes works when you're based in Salt Lake city. Um, uh, you know, let, let's do it. And this is coming by the way, from a couple of, uh, Salt Lake City guys, Salt Lake City fans, maybe even fair to say, but who both of us have picked up and gone elsewhere. So for whatever yeah. that's worth. Well, uh, in, my, in my case, and I think in your case as well, it's not because we don't like Salt Lake. It's exactly. Just, you know, it's the where it's where life took us for the moment. Yes. So no, that's yeah. I mean, we'll we'll see what it turns into, and obviously that's like a, a whole series of podcasts between here and and July. But just from a from a thirty thousand foot level, from a conceptual level, what would you like? What do you picture the Jazz doing with potentially eighteen million in cap space? All these draft picks, their own, and some incoming picks from Oklahoma City, from Golden State, and a and a crap load of second round picks that they have in the next four seasons, um, as well as still some potentially nice trade pieces on their uh, on the talent front. Um, yeah, just to uh, complete the scoreboard there, it's it's besides their own draft picks, they own the two additional dra- first rounders. So that's uh, f- six in the next four seasons, most likely. Although the OKC one could slip a little longer than that, depending on the pr- exact protections and the protection on that other pick that this pick is conditional on, uh, the the one that OKC owes to currently Philadelphia. And then they also have the crap load you mentioned. I can quantify that and. Two, five, nine, eleven in the next four years. Plus their own. No, oh, that's with their own. Oh, that's with their own. Okay. Yeah, that's with their own. So, um, yeah, you got enough to enough picks there to fill the seventeen spots on a roster in four years. Uh, clearly, they're not all going to be here, uh, but they'll. Uh, but their their assets, the Jazz own as of today. So if I go into this summer and I've got all those assets, and I've got this cap space, and I've got some player assets. I mean, it's probably no different than any other year, even if you only have the mid-level exception. What is every general manager looking for? He's looking for a difference maker. He's looking for somebody who's going to come in and take his team to the next level. He's not looking for, no offense to Trevor Booker, but he's not looking for a Trevor Booker. He's not looking for these guys, and sometimes that's who the Jazz end up with after all the after all the sexy free agents are gone. Part of that's monetary. Part of that's the the fact that they're in Utah. Um, but they, you know, you're looking for a difference maker, somebody who's going to really team, in my opinion, with Gordon Hayward, and maybe in the future Dante Exum, and and maybe throw Gobert in there because of his his gifts put him as a he's he's a um, an outlier, somebody who could become far better than we've seen so far who can team with those people, not just support those people. If I have all that money, I'm looking for somebody who's teaming with my top players, not just going to carry their bags around. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I've used the analogy before of, you know, the Jazz have to find their David West type guy because when you look at what Indiana did, um, you know, get, nailing a few mid to late draft picks, by the way, that was a huge part of their story of how they became contenders. But really, it didn't all start to congeal and come together for Indiana until they got this guy who was an all-star caliber player in his own right. He was a guy who who had been in some winning situations, understood what it took, you know what it takes. He was a guy who you could look at in crunch time and say, "Hey, David, go get me a bucket." And largely, I think you know, to a degree, that's the same thing OKC got when they got a younger, more effective version of Kendrick Perkins. They had this young roster with all these recently drafted guys, and then they brought in somebody who had been part of a championship experience, and they, you know, suddenly, almost overnight, went from being a nice collection of young talent to being contenders. And to a degree, I think you could even make the the case that that's what happened when Derek Favor or uh, Derek Fisher rather came to Salt Lake City. The, the one year that the Jazz were able to put together a deep playoff run, and sure, some things had to break right for that conference finals run to to take place but the one year the jazz got that deep happened to be the year that uh, that they had someone with a championship pedigree and and a veteran mindset working alongside with Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer and Mehmet Okur and Andre Kirilenko um, I yeah I agree we, um Although I'd even, I, I still would, even though it turned out that way, I still would, in retrospect, view Fisher as he was a support to the guys that were really doing most of it, his big shots aside and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, yeah, the, the Kendrick Perkins and the Derek Fisher examples are, are more just examples of, you know, that guy that helps you bring it together in, in an intangible way. But I'm with you. I think what the Jazz really want is the David West guy, the guy who... The guy, the guy who can go score 15 for you in a fourth quarter when you need it in a playoff game, um, and and not just the guy who, you know, pats everybody on the back in the locker room. So, um, yeah. No, uh, another point, another uh, one. If you go back to the mid 90s, the Jazz had two guys that were key in their big runs: Jeff Hornacek and Brian, uh, Brian Russell. But in my opinion, one of those guys was a support guy. One of them was the one of them was the top guy, and uh, even though Brian Russell had some impressive stats, he was the support guy. He was more replaceable. Hornacek was the guy who really opened it up for everybody. So you're looking for more of a Hornacek guy, not a guy who who's just going to come in and um, you know help and give some good minutes and be a rotation player. You're looking for a guy who's in the discussion um, for All Star time. You're looking for a guy who's really, you know going to really elevate your team, not just tell you he'll give us some good minutes and uh, and help develop the team. And we have four or five months to speculate on who that guy is and how the Jazz might get him. It could be someone they pick up with their draft pick this summer. It could be someone that they, as Dennis mentioned, move some draft picks around to get a guy under contract. Or it could be someone they go negotiate with on July 1st. and uh, um, Or it could be someone we have to wait a little longer for. We'll see. But for now, we're going to call this one a night and uh, we're going to wrap up the Brothers Clayton uh, trade deadline edition podcast for Salt City Hoops um, sounds like Ken and with the way of parting thoughts we're both okay with what the Jazz reeled in today neither one of us were dancing a celebratory jig and uh, and it's all about what all these assets turn into down the line and if the Jazz can now turn all this stuff into 
a roster that can contend in 2018, 2019, 2020. Yeah, you're right. No celebratory jigs on my end, but I just tend to think that to give him up for what they gave for what they did, uh, they probably wasn't in their long-term plans anyway, kind of a la Ronnie Brewer years ago. So yeah. they got what they, they, you know, some people out in Twitter land or message boards will say they could have gotten so much more for him. Really? Do you think they took an inferior offer? So I think this is what they could get for him on this day. If they didn't trade him today, they were never trading him because uh, he was going to be a restricted free agent. Um, so they got what they got. Uh, bet is made. Now they get to lay in it, and we'll see what they can turn all this into when they get the opportunity. All right. Well, sounds good. Ken, thanks for joining. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, stay tuned to Salt City Hoops for more on the Utah Jazz.